Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your host, Oxygen Advantage founder, Patrick McKeown. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. I was fortunate enough, um, I'm in California, well, I'm actually in Hawaii now at the moment, but last week I was in California and I met up with Dr. Sherry Sammy, who's an orthodontist, and her husband is a medical doctor, Dr. Habib, and I'm not Thank even you. going to Sadegi, <laughs> I'm not even going to try and pronounce his surname, but what really struck me was the degree of consciousness that they brought into the practice, both in how they are approaching their patients, but in the architecture, in the layout, in every facet of where it comes into contact with the patient. And there was a degree of calmness in the clinic. I was lucky enough to stay at their house. I stayed in the clinic for pretty much most of the day on one of the days. So I was able to kind of get a sense of the interaction. So I think this is going to be a lovely conversation because I'm going to say this, Dr. Sherry, I have not met too many doctors and as I said, there's probably loads of them out there who intentionally approach their practice with a sense of consciousness. And right. I'd love to get an idea of what kind of brought you there. What's your interpretation? So how did it all begin? How get interested in consciousness? Because you came from right afield. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it was such a pleasure to have you last year. I've been a big fan of your work for so many years. I don't even know how many years, I think over 15, 12, 15, something like that. And uh, yeah, it was before Hafez, you know, so he's 16 years old. <laughs> wow. uh, it was such a, such a beautiful thing to actually be, you know, being able to meet with you and then to host you in our house so we can get a deeper glimpse of who Patrick is and the breathing that he brings forward to, to the world. Um, and then also like just to have you in my clinic. So you get a glimpse of what we do and how we do things in a little bit differently. Um, I 100% agree with you that uh, there's not that many doctors in general that they are really bringing forward the consciousness. And to be honest with you, in the beginning, it was very scary because um, a lot of times like we have been taught how to separate that consciousness away from like the medical science so much that uh, that we're all afraid of if we bring forward anything that it's not uh, scientific or it's not been taught in medical school or dental school or any kinds of school, then we wouldn't be able to be recognized as um, official or as uh, good enough or anything like that. Um, I was both Habib and I, we've been very, very interested in the whole aspects of psychology of the mind and then going beyond that spirituality in our own um, lives. We have um, really, really incorporated that into, you know, I have a bachelor and a master in psychology, and we both did that master together with uh, a three-year spiritual psychology with uh, the emphasis of consciousness, health, and healing. And when we did that program, 
we kind of got a lot braver because there were two physicians that they were two physicians and two psychologists that they were teaching that um, program together. And it was a incredible thing of just being exposed to so many things that, that brings health, you know, acupuncture, chakras, you know, mindfulness, breathing, you know, and, and meditations, so many different things. And it was, and, and it really, in the beginning of the third year, what we, what they ask us to do, if there is any kind of sickness that you want to bring forward, and then they had like measurements of how does that sickness changes over the time, as you drop off the burden and the heaviness of the hurt of the fear of the anxiety of anything that it's uh, that it's really putting a burden on you the heartbreak that could be going on even intergenerationally you know gratefully we didn't have major sicknesses you know but there were quite often many people like in that class that they had stage four cancer and um autoimmune disease. And it was phenomenal to see how through the course of the year, how many people started feeling better and they couldn't find the tumor anymore. And they couldn't find the, um, you know, any signs of the MS anymore. And they couldn't find any of the, um, symptoms of whatever that they had. Um, and other than Habib having, he had his own cancer journey, you know, and he really, really believes that so much of working on his past and working on his consciousness was the, was the reason that he's over, you know, 30 years cancer free. But also we just saw like hundreds of people that they went through that journey and they kind of got better and better and better in that journey. So that kind of gave us a little bit of a courage of kind of coming and really starting a conversation um, that it's beyond just the physical aspects of the body. Because after all, we are emotional, mental, more than even the physical. And our emotional and mental affects significantly how our body, you know, um, functions. And we know that, you know that like how the sympathetic nervous system and what we think, if I think like, oh my God, you know, uh, I don't think that Patrick really liked me when he came and he saw me and like the first, you know, interactions that we had. And I'm just making all of that stuff in my mind, but automatically like my heartbeat stopped getting, getting much faster and my face is going to start blushing and my posture might change, you know, and that might actually have an effect on you, like thinking that I don't like you. And then it just, the whole interaction goes a different directions. So based on all of those things, we started kind of looking at those things in a much, much deeper way and understanding that the physical has such an important component of mental, emotional, and in our opinion, spiritual. Um, and that was the beginning of many incredible, incredible healing things where it also um, helped us to start our clinic with that mindfulness and with that aspects of, you know, having parking lots. I don't know if you noticed that, but having parking not lots with intentions, words, intent, like different intention words that they can park in. And then like little, 
little poetry part that when you walk around, there's like little poems and everything around that they can kind of meditate on. We're still kind of uh, fixing that uh, garden after our um, flood, but these are some of the things that we incorporated. And then how much trees and nature and um, just sitting in quiet, like it's a much better physician that Habib and I both put together in our opinion. You know, we know that our space is just as healing as any words that comes out of our mouth and anything that we do. So that's why we specifically created that, um, that aspects, even though all the business advisors were telling us, what are you doing? This is all real estate that you're not making money out of. You know, it's like, no, this is, this is part of the healing experience and a healing journey. So it's been an incredible. And we we're learning as much as, we're teaching. So I think that the teacher always actually grows more than the students, in my opinion. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and when you're talking about a space of stillness, you're also talking about a mind of stillness. And the other thing that strikes me is that we often feel that we are the only ones that have self-doubt and mm -hmm. that we are the only ones that may have different worries. And of course, this is going to be different person to person and depending on the challenges of course that they face but the first point is when you talk about sitting in stillness because many people I remember reading a book back about 30 years ago and I went out onto the beach and I sat there but sure I might have I might have been anywhere because yeah. all I was doing was thinking when I was out there I was right. sitting in the right place but my mind wasn't in the right place can you talk a little bit about that um, because it's not always easy. It's a little bit challenging, isn't it? In terms of yeah. that stillness of the mind. And, you know, so, yeah. Uh, well, I think that one of the, one of my favorite books, it's not one of my first book that I read, but one of my favorite books that I read was called Surrender Experiment by uh, Michael Sin Singer. Um, because he kind of sets out this uh, this aspects of what does surrendering means, you know, and and allowing the universe to really guide you of what's next. But what he talks about, uh, and I might be paraphrasing in most of his books um, that I came across, is he's kind of like this mindfulness of how much there is a roommate inside of you, you know, that just constantly wants to make opinions about every single thing. <laughs> he calls it the no, the no, the nosy uh, roommate or something like that within that aspect. I call it the nosy mother-in-law, you know, <laughs> so wants to make an opinion about, oh my God, but that person's, you know, skirt is too short. My, you know, why is the weather too bad? I mean, it just constantly wants to make an opinion, right? And, and chatters inside. If we start actually paying attention to it, the fact that we can actually hear it and we're aware of it, that means it's not so much us, you know, and we're able to control it. But most people, they haven't even thought about controlling it. They haven't even thought about like, what does it matter? I mean, what does it mean if we can just quiet down that still, you know, that voice and that constant opinionated, you know, uh, voice that it's inside of us. So a lot of times when people, they start, they have, doesn't matter where, where they are, doesn't matter 
um, what kind of a situation they are, this mind just keeps going and going and going. And if you get upset, it's a loop. You turn to like go around and around saying the same things, you know, and having the conversations in your head over and over and over again um, over the same subject. So when they sit, you know, inside a place that they can be aware of that, they can be aware that there is a nosy roommate that it just can't stop making opinion. And then just bring mindfulness perhaps to their breath, you know, perhaps to their body sensation, perhaps to the tree that they're looking for, but without the words, like without the opinion of, oh, this tree is too tall, it's too thick, it's too, you know, it's dying, it's all of that, just, just the stillness of the tree. As we harmonize within our surrounding, like, you know, my beloved and I, we have really, really gone out of our way, not only in our clinic, but, you know, in our home to bring a lot of nature into our environment. Because in the busy Los Angeles city, where you just get pulled in the busyness of like, go, 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 go. And, you know, catching up with everyone. We wanted to kind of be in a space that the horse, you know, rides very slowly and we have to slow down our cars or our steps. You know, the nature goes really slowly, you know, so everything just slows down even for, you know, a little bit in order for us to, bring mindfulness to like, what does it mean to like really slow down, not just our bodies, but also our mind. And as we start paying attention to that voice, I feel like we have a lot, we're a lot more closer to getting that mind and becoming the master of that mind rather than the mind being the master of ourselves. And I think that was, that was the biggest, um, lessons that I have learned in terms of what does it look to be and then taking that into our clinical setting because so often as doctors we have been taught like the minute the patient starts talking that's the time that you start diagnosing you know it's like it's been instilled in us from the time that we went to school we start thinking like, oh yeah, they have this symptom, then that means this is the diagnosis. They have this symptom, they have the diagnosis. So we have something called all art of living through our um, through our nonprofit organization, Love Button Global Movement. The medical students to teach them how to stop thinking and to just listen with their heart, not really thinking, you know, very quickly, and to ask questions deeper questions like how did that make you feel or what did what was it that was really important for you in that subject the medical students that we taught were the were higher were harder than the prisoners to be able to listen so they had a really difficult time because we have been completely groomed like that the minute the patient starts talking that we just start thinking in our head so what does that mean if we just stop judging, stop diagnosing, and then the first at least however many minutes that we have with that patient, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, really listen with an intention of oh, my, 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 one of my teachers, um, he just passed away a couple of years ago, Dr. Jim Jealous. He said, 
listen with the intention of completely being changed forever. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful way of listening to someone because you are anticipating to be changed in some ways. And I think you and I know when we work with patients, when we work with people, like every single one of them, they bring a gift to us. But if you're too busy in our head and we're not listening, then it just becomes like, here's all the things that I want to tell you. I'm not really interested of what you want to tell me. And then there is no exchange of energy and exchange of love in that in some ways. So. So there is a connection that goes beyond the words. It's 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 that connection that even if people are sitting in silence, that if our mind is in silence, it's almost that we're transmitting something. It's beyond the word, but it will help to bring that person as well and some stillness. It's it's not always easy. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's, life is pulling us back it's into the mind. Always difficult, actually. <laughs> it's always difficult. <laughs> it's never easy. <laughs> but I suppose then we have to ask: Well, what's the alternative? Because living in the head isn't much of an alternative. That's a recipe for disaster. And I like the analogy of the mother-in-law. We'll all remember that one so well. <laughs> so we have the thinker in the mind. Sorry, all the so then approaching this to your patients because it's it's often a very difficult conversation to um you know the language that we use to communicate it people get it and i think intuitively people want it they understand it but i feel that it's been kind of bypassed because it has been associated with two left you're talking about two right that the the doctor's mind has been trained only to be scientific. But in terms of consciousness, it has been taught to left. Yes. And both are at opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you bring both into the middle? What do you do in terms of the language? Does it just happen naturally? Um, Yes. And it happens naturally because I'm more interested to learn about them. Like my new patient exams, it's not just an exam. It's also a deep, deep conversation with the parents. Um, It's an hour and a half. So I have plenty of time to really, really open everything up and then just go really deep into the family dynamic, into the intergenerational drama and trauma um, and then just really get to know the parents from a very, very different, you know, different angle. You know, once in a while, I have some dads sometimes, <laughs> you know, that they are a little resistant to get to the emotional part. Um, but often, you know, they they go, you know, when you ask them, what was it? Can you tell me some of the things, you know, that I start with the physical stuff, right? What was like some of the, uh, was there any past medical history in your, um, in you or your family? And then we kind of go through and I said, past medical history includes, you know, constant respiratory issues. It includes you getting braces. It includes, you know, like having large tonsils. It includes like, you constantly being having belly aches, you know, so I go into all of that. And then I said, is there, was there any, you know, anything in your family? And then just kind of like, take it a little bit deeper, you know, like respiratory stuff, 
with the grief, you know, the uh, stomach stuff, not being able to digest emotions, you know, was there any threat in the family, any, you know, trauma that was present, any parents that was a little, you know, too strict, or you, I don't know, alcoholics or anything like that. So I get in a little bit into that. Um, and just ask a little bit about who they are as a person, because it's going to really, really determine like, okay, I can tell a, a kid how to breathe, you know, or Zara can teach all of these things. But if the parents are from morning to night, they're shouting at each other, it's not going to happen. And you and I know, like, I have to know that if the parents are constantly in an anxious state, doesn't matter what I do with that kid, it's not going to translate into health and well-being. So I have to kind of go and find out who the parents are, where they are with their own emotional and nervous system, what has created that emotional and nervous system to be such that, and then after that kind of come back. And once you get someone to be a little bit more vulnerable and they trust you and they open up, then I think that the next level of, you know, being in, um, in the, you know, speaking about the consciousness, the energy that you are speaking about, the collective um, aspects of this energy that we can. And then I bring out the HeartMath Institute and all the wonderful things that they have done, how, you know, it doesn't matter, like I can sit next to you and you can feel my vibration and you can feel if I'm in a bad mood or in a good mood, I can cook something for you and you can feel my, my emotional state in there. I I'm so sensitive that if like, I literally can feel the emotion of the person in their food, you know, but you have to develop that sensitivity. If you're just eating in front of a computer or in front of the, uh, you know, TV, I don't think that you can feel anything because you're too engaged and out of this experience. That's why when you go to meditation, silent meditation, the first time that I went in self-realization center, I think I was 19 and it was so uncomfortable for me in a big Persian family, you know, to, to sit in front of someone and not talk at all and eat. What do you do? Like, do you just look at your food? Do you look at the person? Do you look around, you know? But after the third day, I'm like, oh my God, I can taste all of these stuff that I never tasted before because we were just too busy talking, you know, in the past. So all of these like little things, once you slow down that aspects of um, being here and being at this moment, I feel like then you can start feeling the energy and then from that aspect and the con you know uh, introducing the consciousness becomes a lot more important and a lot easier. So if you say like what are you feeling in your body where do you feel it what color is it you know is it heavy you know I can see and a lot of times they can see you know like what how does it affect and people that they're entertainment industry, they know like if they have shoulders forward, like automatically in a movie, you kind of think like this person is like upset and closed off, you know. Meanwhile, we're seeing all of these kids with, you know, with a lot of breathing issues that their whole posture is head forward, 
you know, neck forward. Um, now, like they have to bring their shoulder forward in order to keep the weight and then bringing their back, you know. So what kind of an impression they are giving to the world by that posture that has been created with their airways. So these are some of the subtleties that we speak about. And then slowly, you know, just some people are more open to it and they just come right into it. And some people, they have their, they slowly come into it as they, they start bringing that mindfulness into their everyday and to their thought process. So a more conscious being has a more a greater stillness in the, of the mind or a greater capacity to control thinking and not to get lost so much in overthinking and something happens. Okay. We are going to think about it, but right. a person who's more conscious as you spoke about earlier on is more aware of it. They see that they're making these thoughts and these thoughts are affecting their body and making them stress and the stressed body is feeding into the mind and you have that loop. So it just gives us a better ability to, to step out of it and make life a bit softer the benefits of it are huge and um, so here we're talking about consciousness but there's two things that are going on in my mind one is the benefits for that busy dad who's coming in how do we break that down in terms of what happens when we have the capacity to have some degree over control over mind even for a business person or for the actor do you ever think about that way in terms of, you know, the language that we're communicating to, to really show, listen, this isn't just left to field. This is really for our normal yeah. everyday person. Right. So uh, I think in one way, I'm very, very blessed uh, that I have chosen to work with kid, with children because children are so much easier to come into that state than adults. But the way that I actually get to the adults is through their children. <laughs> so when uh, I can uh, tell you about one example, there was, um, there is this really, really adorable patient of mine. He's, he's almost 17, 16, actually. And I've seen him since he was two. Both parents are significant mouth breathers. They are very, very congested all the time. Uh, and they, like you tell them something, they explode. There is no capacity for anything. I mean, it just, they misunderstand something and next thing comes out of their mouth is just screaming and shouting and like, you know, not understanding even like what you're trying to convey and not listening at all. I, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to fire them from my practice. Uh, but these two kids that I really adore, I have, I had a difficult time doing that. So the kid started coming uh, to my practice without the parents, somebody else was driving them. And he comes to me, he says, Dr. Sammy, one day he was seven or eight. He says, Dr. Sammy, I don't want to be like my mom and dad. I see how much, how fast they lose their temper. What can I do so I don't become like them? And I say, well, your breathing has a lot to do with it because since they are not getting enough oxygen and they're constantly congested, you know, and they're not getting really good sleep, let's start from there. So he's like, whatever you tell me, I'm going to tell this person who drives me to kind of come and I'll tell my parents to do it. 
And they don't, they're too busy anyways. They don't care. So I'll just start doing it. So the kid actually at seven years old, he took it upon himself to start scheduling the patient, you know, stuff. He would actually call himself <laughs> to say, when is his appointment, you know, and the cutest thing and asking that person who would bring him like to actually arrange all of those things. He completely became a different kid. So always congested, could never like dark circle. I mean, we know the sign, you know, all of the constantly getting sick, missing school, digestive issues, all of those things as he started breathing differently, it started going away. The parents, they started asking him, oh, you eat the same food as us, you know, on the most part, like, why are you not congested anymore? Oh, yeah, I started like working with Zara. And I started working and doing these. And I taped my mouth. He was like, he started taping his mouth and doing all these things. Then the mom started becoming really interested because she was a CPA, very, very high, stressful jobs, you know, it's like, oh, I can't take it anymore. I can see myself like just really becoming uh, weaker and weaker as a result of it, more sick, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, like I get sick so often. So I started kind of training and learning from the from the son, but then like taking a few classes with Zara. Then after that, like, it, you know, and then the little one was just following every, you know, the big brother's footsteps. So they, they would do the breathing together. So now there's three people in the family <laughs> that they are, kind of going toward health. And then the dad in here started like kind of being curious, like, what is it? Like, oh, the mom is not getting as engaged when he shouts and scream. The mom just walks away, you know, or it's like, why are you getting so worked up about, about this like whole aspects? And they were almost actually in the verge of divorce. So then he became curious and he's like, I don't really believe in any of these things, but I'm going to come anyways, just because the rest of my family, they want me to. <laughs> so, so then he started coming and, and becoming more interested. So a lot of times and their family dynamic changed significantly, significantly. I can't even tell you from like the time that I saw them as a two-year-old and a one-year-old, like the, the kids are one year apart to the to now that there are 16 and 15 and that the parents have changed so much you know just all of this you know because their son basically led them to a very very different way of breathing different way of you know mouth taping at night different oxygenation then he slowly started eliminating some of these foods that they are not so great for them you know and that changed the dynamic most of the time, it's not the same thing for every single child to be that proactive. However, the dad that comes in and brings their um, their son, I think, you know, me and you, we know one of them. He brought his son and he became really interested. It's like, oh, so the fact that I had my premolars extracted and I had all of this crowding was because I could never breathe. Oh, the fact that I always have my nose congested and my sinus not developed is because I could never breathe, you know, and I was always mouth breathing. So sometimes like as they're going through the journey and listening to whether me, Zara, Tanya, or anyone that is working with them um, in that journey, then they start becoming curious and reflecting back on their own childhood and all of the things that kind of happen 
that everybody says, oh, that's just normal. You know, yeah, we'll take just 40,000. We'll put the brace, slap those braces on and you're good. You're good to go. And then now they're saying, no, that was not good to go. You know, like now I have airway issues. Now I have neck issues. Now I have sinus issues. Now I have other things, you know, like uh, IBS, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, uh, now I'm constantly getting sick. So then they start becoming much more interested in their own, their, um, their own well-being. And then it's sometimes it's a different thing where they come because they want to just bring a different future to their children. And they don't want the kids to have the same thing. Like, I think me and you, we have that in common. We became really curious because of our own journey. You know, I was a mouth breather and just, you know, the challenges of what we went through. So like, my kids, like my my daughter, when she gets actually both of them, when they were especially kids, like three-year-olds, like they would wake up with the stuffy nose. Mommy, is that okay if I can breathe through my mouth? Just one breath you know, at two o'clock in the morning because we taught them how this is not the greatest thing. And we started working in all of these things because we were passionate about our own journey and our own childhood. That So that's also the other part of my, my practice that I get to. But I never like directly go to the parents. I always go through their children. It's easier. It's amazing because probably the children are not conditioned. They don't have that layers of baggage and yeah. they're probably more open to it. It's more innate. It seems that there's a two-way connection here. And often things, you know, people will ask, is it the chicken or the egg? So on one hand, we have a quiet mind and the ability to be able to remain still. And it's really about resilience, isn't it? In terms of the world, it's the ability to be able to stay calm under pressure. It's the ability to be able to self-regulate. So how the mind is, is going to influence our breathing but you're looking at it from both both that connection can we talk a little bit about that in terms of you've mentioned airway you've which a lot of dentists unfortunately and orthodontists they focus on the teeth they focus on straightening the teeth but they never give any consideration to the airway right and that is a big problem because of course the orthodontist really has a responsibility in terms of the mouth and the airway. It's the most important thing because the minute that we get the patient, what do we do? We just put them back. And then if the person is like having any kinds of anxiety, we call them non-cooperative. And then we're like, okay, yeah, we're going to, you know, kind of put you out in order to do the dentistry. But imagine you know, when the person comes in, just looking at their faces, looking how they're breathing, looking at how their face has has actually formed. Do they have enough mid-face where like their sinuses has developed? What's happening underneath the eyes? You know, what's going on in their, not only like their arch and the width of the arch, how much space do they have? And this patient might not feel really comfortable like being put all the way down. Because if they have large tonsils, tongues, you know, not really having enough space, then everything goes back and they feel like they're going to suffocate. So it doesn't matter how much they want to be the best patient for you and they want to cooperate because they feel in an unconscious way, actually, like they can't breathe. 
they're going to start throwing a tantrum in some ways, you know, whether it's like anxiety or, you know, in children's way that they are a little bit more freer to express themselves crying or whatever. And so one of the things that I think is the most important responsibility of a dentist is before we have this position of like right away putting the the patient down is to look at some of these things, you know, like half of the times I spend, actually not half of the times, every single time I spend like uh, on every patient's like, oh, what are some of your hobbies? What are some of the things you like? You know, what it's like, how do you, where do you go to school? What's the name of your best friend? But this opportunity of being able to like, look and see how do they speak? What do they, how are they using their mouth? Are they breathing through their nose? What's happening with the eyes? You know, are they using any of these muscles? Like there's so much information that within that five minutes I'm getting, is this patient going to be comfortable with like being laid down or no, that it's going to just put them in fight and flight and completely ruin the experience of being in my very serene and, uh, you know, calm and, you know, beautiful clinic, healing clinic. So it's like, it's that responsibility that we have as a dentist, especially with our chairs and everything that we take very lightly in my opinion. And I think that every single dentist, the first thing that they should be taught is to do that evaluation and not to put a patient down without really understanding if this patient has some airway issues and can breathe actually with you putting them flat or no, it doesn't have the airway issues and they're comfortable. And then more so, how much can they afford having stuff to be done in their mouth when there is a small arch, when they are mouth breathing, when they are they have a completely dysfunctional swallowing where like the whole entire face like uses the muscles whenever. And then now we're putting the suction in there and then the open, you know, we're opening their bite and we're doing this and we're doing that. And it's like, we're just constantly telling them like, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Like, and it's, and they're really having a challenging time. So, you know, I really, I would love to start from every single dental students really being able to the first thing, just look at the patient's have them walk, have them, we didn't have any new patients to see how I kind of evaluate the whole thing, but like have them walk, look at the, you know, their ear canal, how many ear infections did they have? What, what are some of the things that happens in the sinuses? What does the tonsil look? If you have a three-dimensional, what does that adenoid looks? So all of these things like gives us so, and then how does the patient sleep? This is relevant to the work that we do because we can grow and change all of those things that, you know, we talked about it, like the teeth, they sit on 22 other bones in the, in the cranium. If you're just kind of like, okay, let me just move it around without the mindfulness of the rest of the cranium. I feel, you know, with all due respect, we're doing more wrong than good. And we have been promised not to do that. We have an oath that do no harms. So I think that the 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 um, the way that we go about things should completely change in dental school and in orthodontic school. So, but we might have a little bit to way to go. 
Yeah, it's it's a the debate has gone on for a long time. And when you said this has relevance to dentistry, and I remember reading a, a paper by Catherine Vig, who is a really well-known orthodontist in the United States, and she asked the question, is this relevant to dentistry? And she spoke about we don't know how much nasal obstruction causes a problem. We don't know at what time that the child gets a stuffy nose that it may impact their orthodontic development. We don't know how long the child has to have a stuffy nose for before mouth breathing impacts it. But I think she missed the point. And I'll say that as a lay person, because oftentimes in the industry, it takes a few brave orthodontists to put their their views forward and that can be pushed back in any industry. Um, coming back full circle. So a child who's coming in with the mouth open, why are you so interested in getting the child's mouth closed from an orthodontic perspective? What would happen if we just leave the child with the mouth open? What may happen? Nothing else works when the child mouth, when the child has their mouth open, none of the development. See, I'm not, uh, with all due respect, I'm not interested to just straighten their teeth. I'm interested, my my hope and my intention is by the time that this child leaves my clinic, hopefully like when they go to college, because a lot of times that happens, not just as an orthodontist, but as their, as their, I don't know, pediatric dentist, wellness coach, whatever that I have been doing, um, that this child is so much more vibrant physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, you know, and spiritually, like my, you know, some people are open to it, some people are not. But I choose every single opportunity in order to increase their mental and emotional capacity. So when the mouth is not closed, like I can't develop that jaw, that airway, that sinus, the the whole aspects of the jaw development does not happen. And then the myofunctional goes to waste, the cranial work goes to waste, the development of the jaw goes to waste. And in some cases, I can even tell you like, you know, the eyes and like the way that the eye coordinate with each other in some children, you know, it doesn't work. Then their mental and emotional capacity is not in, in the same aspects. So like the child also doesn't have capacity for life, which I see so much nowadays with the new generation, right? Like we pamper our children so much that like the capacity that the last generation had for certain emotional, um, you know, things they happen throughout the day, but it doesn't necessarily like you come, you speak with your family, you digest it, you know, they digest it, your emotions as well as digesting the food. And then after that, when you go to sleep, you have eight hours, all of these stages of sleep that it just kind of categorize what has happened to you, where does it need to go? And it heals it with a good, you know, sleep that goes through all the stages. When a child goes through a hardship, you know, like let's say bullying in the school, or I don't know, nowadays it's like, you know, gunshots or whatever that it comes or all of those things, are, or, or a principal started yelling at them, you know, they go, they come back home. Sometimes there's no one home. Sometimes the person that is home, they're busy in their own cell phones and 
computers or whatever it is like the child is like not necessarily having a chance and opportunity to speak it and to metabolize it and to understand it because a lot of times when we hear ourselves we actually are able to um, metabolize the whatever that we have gone through because we're very wise being from the very beginning I really believe that and when we hear ourselves we actually can see like what has happened? And it helps us to digest. And then with like just a couple of things that the parents, the questions that the parents can can ask, then they can kind of go through a different directions with, with how they perceived that event. Um, so then they sit, you know, the, the normal child, like they come in and they they start playing video game or they they go on the computer and they go through, you know, Instagram or TikToks or whatever that is they don't have the opportunity to really metabolize what has happened to them. Then this child goes to bed, you know, most likely most of them nowadays with like the, until the last second being on that blue light, you know, so that already is like completely throwing their sleep cycle, eating late, eating things that they're not, they don't necessarily digest well, like our food sources and everything. Then they go to bed and they're mouth breathing. So they're constantly in and out of the deep sleep, if they even get to the deep sleep and the REM sleep, but their sleep is constantly interrupted. They don't really get to digest their, their day in a way. So that trauma remains. Then their next one comes in and the next one comes in. So I I think that in on the most part that when this mouth is, when a person is, um, I can say when the person's mouth is open, their ability to digest life significantly reduces. And everything remains as a trauma in their body. And then we know like based on so many amazing books, like the body keeps the score, you know, we know that the trauma stays in the body. So then we are having a person at 30, 40, 50, that they're having all these health issues because their the trauma has remained in their bodies. And that's the, that's the longer way. I don't say that this is all our responsibility to take care of, but I think if I see a child with a mouth open, it should be my interest and my enthusiasm to first thing that I do to be able, what's causing it? How can I take care of it? What can I do to help with other practitioners? That's why we have a collaborative team because I can't do it all. So, um, you know, like what's, is there, is it food? Is it something in the house? Is it mold? Is it just, you know, habit of constant breathing that has enlarged the tonsils and the turbinates are enlarged and everything else? Is it the frenum? Is it what, what are some of the things that, you know, it's almost like a detective work, right? Finding out like, what is it that it's causing that constant congestion with other practitioners and then trying to first close that mouth? Because I really believe that with a, I don't even, with a mouth breather, I don't even do a tongue phrenectomy without closing that mouth. Because I think it's going to reattach like half of it, at least. You have to take care of that mouth opening before you can you can actually have a successful lingual release, you know, tongue release, tongue tie release. 
at least that has been my my experience so that's the first thing that we we try to take care of like get that mouth closed to be able to breathe through the nostrils and then like slowly like let's get to the rest of the equation so whether we have to develop something we have to straighten something and in all the years i'm like very 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 proud of this fact in all the years since residency i have not one patient that I have recommended taking the by the the four premolars, and I have never had a patient that we had to do that, including um, also the canines getting stuck because we start developing the whole thing and then looking at all of those things. So those are not the common things that's like it's just normal in orthodontics, you know, which are in most orthodontic offices they are normal, but it's because they're not looking at the cause why they're getting stuck, why they are, there's crowding, why that's, this is happening. And then, okay, now that we know the why, how can we collaborate with other people and to make sure that, you know, we can address that. And going after the tonsils, the first, as the first thing is not the solution either. Um, if the patient is mouth breathing, just because you're taking their tonsils out, they're not going to automatically become a nose breather. So there's a little couple of steps before that, that you have to also take a look at mm. before you suggest someone to go and take their tonsils or adenoids out as well. I think you made a very good point. And I know we were going to have a chat about the tonsils and adenoids. And I had my daughter, um, her adenoids and tonsils removed. And if I was to do it again, I would do it differently. But I went with the best information that I had available back then. Um, the efficacy of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, according to a paper by the American Thoracic Society that was published in 2010. And the first sentence they read in that is that they don't know the efficacy of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy in sleep disorder breathing in 2010. And the practice has been carried out since the 1970s. So they looked at 578 children and only 27% of children had their sleep apnea cured as a result of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. 73% of children continue to have sleep apnea, post-tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. So then we have to ask the question, it's not solely down to the adenoids and tonsils enlarged that is causing the obstruction. It's the development of the face and the airway. It's the, They found that children with asthma, with inflammation, and when there's an inflammatory response in the body, it affects our sleep and breathing. Irrespective of inflammation of the lungs, even people with rheumatoid arthritis, inflammation of other parts of the body, their sleep is impacted. And this is why I like what you're doing is you're bringing together the consciousness part of it. You're dealing with the stress. You're helping to bring balance to the autonomic nervous system. And you know of the interplay between the two. Also, when you get the face and development of the jaws with the tongue resting up and the roof of the mouth, and I understand that you, you align the body as well with posture. You're helping to bring balance to the autonomic nervous system on one side, and you're also helping to bring mindfulness and awareness and breathing exercise on the other, that the two are meeting together, that ultimately children are going to reach their full potential. I'm conscious with time, um, but Dr. Sami, I'd love to know, where do you see it going? Have you ever thought about this? Do you ever give consideration that we can all make our little mark in the world? Do you think the time is ripe? Do you think people are more embracing Oh, yes. I, I, we discussed this when you were here. I just see a huge, huge difference. 
not necessarily, you know, I, I feel like the changes is not necessarily coming from practitioners initially. It's actually coming from patients and from all the moms and dads and all the, the other people that they are becoming more aware of some of these things. And then they're bringing it up to their doctors, you know, whatever kind of doctor it is. And then if the doctor is like, just kind of really not paying attention to it, then like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave this doctor and go and find a doctor that, uh, that actually looks at my, my child's stuff or my own symptoms. So I think that there is a huge, huge difference between now. And I would say 10 years ago, you know, even 10 years ago with, uh, with the interest. I, I mean, I had someone, when I started doing the telehealth, I had someone from South Africa that requested, you know, a telehealth with me. I'm like, what am I going to do for all the way over there? But then once I started speaking, I'm like, okay, there is certain information that I can give. And there are certain aspects of things that I can guide patients, at least, you know, to be able to have those information to implement into their, um, into their child's life and into their own lives. But I think that there is a lot of differences that it's happened, you know, between now and 10 years ago in terms of what people know. And I think we discussed it like I, James Nestor's Breathe book just brought so much more interest because it's such a uh, easy language to be able to communicate uh, what he brought forward and the fact that he went and experimented on himself, you know, in Stanford and other places, you know, that that brought the patient's awareness so much higher. Um, so I, I don't know. I think in 10 years, we would have orthodontia and dentistry completely be uh, from a very, very different perspective, you know, and it starts to go in a very different dark directions that what poor John Mew and a lot of those people in the, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when they started talking about these things, um, they, they faced, you know, I, 17 years ago, like people, they thought I'm nuts, you know, when I would just be like, how does your child sleep? You know, it's like, what does that have to do with you? I just want straight teeth. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to just straight your kid's teeth. I want to look at this posture, look at the way your child, you know, moves, look at all of these things. And, um, and some people stayed and some people didn't. Some of my colleagues, they were intrigued. Some of them, they thought I'm a little crazy, but um, I think as the years went by, I see more and more like the phrenectomy was not even a subject before, you know, 16 years ago when Hafez was born, like I went to 17 practitioners to see, to figure out why am I having breastfeeding issues? And every single one of them, including the lactation consultants, they were just like, either just keep going or start formula. And then when my mentor, Dr. Nordstrom came and like looked at him like, oh yeah, he has a posterior tongue tie. I was a UCLA, you know, I was teaching at UCLA. I'm like, what is that? You know, so I think that all of these things are much more a conversation now. And I think it's coming from the patients. So it's intriguing the doctors. And then the doctors are more and more looking into learning and then at the same time, they see like their own children a lot of times like, oh, my child has like sleeping issues. It is an issue that like they have that. 
And it's, and it's very interesting because I know a lot of my orthodontist friends, when it comes to their own children, they chose not to take those premolars out, you know, and okay, let's see, what are the things that you do that you expand at what age? Five, four, three, two, you know, it's like, um, I mean, we even have the baby elf, the infant elf. So we start developing the whole jaw, you know, with from literally the minute that they're they're born, you know, actually a little bit more with the with training the moms, the mouth breathing moms to stop mouth breathing during pregnancy. That's one of the works that I really love to do and see how that changes, because we know that the kid becomes a mouth breather most often when the child is a mouth breather. So I think that we are we are having a very, very exciting future where it's going to be very different, you know, and, and I, see, I don't know, I saw the tipping point, I want to say around COVID for some reason, but maybe it was before that, maybe it was after that, but I really saw that tipping point that happened that just everything just took off and, and a lot of people became so much more aware of what we're, what we're talking about the past 20 years. So, and people even before that. I agree with you. For people to find you, you mentioned lovebutton.org, which I think is is a wonderful charity. And how do you have Instagram? Do you have YouTube channels? Yes, I, have a, I have a Dr. Sherry Sammy Instagram and also Happy Kids Dental Planet Instagram. I try to keep the two a little bit different, you know. Um, so I do put a lot of my consciousness stuff some stuff about like uh, the the orthodontia and breathing and you know drinking and all kinds of like um, all of that stuff into the Dr. Sherry Sammy, but I don't put any of the consciousness stuff still into the Happy Kids. Mm-hmm. But that is for me, um, that's that's probably something that I'm the most passionate about because I feel like when you're able to look at life with a deeper perspective and question your own thoughts and then bring love and compassion and kindness and presence and um, acceptance and trust into it, then your whole body changes, your physiology changes, your outlook, your enthusiasm for life. You know, I want to grow into my hundreds, like still like just really loving like living you know and and really getting so excited about meeting a new person and experiencing the ocean or whatever else that I'm doing I just want to have that and in order for you to have that you have to have a different mindset you have to be present to that to the beauty of the tree to the beauty of you know, little things in life that comes to the beauty of meeting someone new that can completely bring a new energy. You know, I was so enchanted by your daughter and the beauty and the grace that she brought forward in my house, you know. So that to me, like I wake up with the gratitudes in my heart and I literally count. Thank you for bringing Lauren and Patrick into my life, you know. And then that makes make sure that as I'm going through my day and the challenges are coming, I'm not forgetting about the gratitudes of my the beginning in the morning. You know, thank you for the sun. Thank you for seeing the sun and the moon while I'm in the middle of the ocean at the same time. You know, how enchanting. And then that dolphin came up, you know. Um, and I think when you do some of those things, like it just 
life kind of takes a different color and shape. And then it doesn't become about working and raising kids and getting married. And just like, it doesn't become routine. All of those things take a different shape. And then you start questioning. It's like your, your own mind. Like, am I, did I take this too seriously? Did I, did I get upset for no reason? Am I taking this personally and I don't need to. And, and then so life becomes a little bit more graceful rather than so challenging and hard as people, they, they have a hard time with it, especially as we grow older, we become heavier. <laughs> so, Well, it's been wonderful. And thank you so much, Sherry. It's been a really lovely conversation. And I think you've touched on so many things that can be beneficial to people. So thank, um, you. thank you. It was lovely to speak with you as well. And uh, and I would love to interview you as well. So to bring your perspective <laughs> and everything else. So we'll, we'll plan that. But thank you so much for so grateful for doing what you're doing. Like the breath is the beginning of so many things. And I think that if we just start with that breath, you know, like just being able to breathe and that mindfulness to breathing, you know, through the breath that we bring forward. There's so much that can open up for us that uh, that we didn't think it was a possibility. So I'm so grateful for the your passion that you're bringing to this world and for the dedication. I know it's a lot of work, but uh, and sometimes challenging when you get the the pushbacks, but I'm so grateful for all of your hard work and all the teachings that you have done. You have changed my life significantly, made me so much more interested in the profession that I'm doing. I don't think I would have been able to be a good orthodontist or a dentist, pediatric dentist, had I been just doing what, you know, what I was taught in dental school. I'm sure you would have found a way. Don't worry about that. You would have found a way. So listen, a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.